0: Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Michelle Rendells, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who's in Reno today. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, reporters Riley Snyder, Megan Messerly, and I talk about the second week of the legislature and what to expect over the next 100 and, I don't know, six days. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information... The Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indy Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. <laughs> so guys, um, this afternoon I was at an extremely long, and I must say a little bit boring hearing, about marijuana. They're, they're trying to basically develop the cannabis um, compliance board. So there's this this group that's trying to figure out how they want to structure it. So this thing lasted for five to six hours. Uh, but you guys were at what was probably the most watched event of the day, which was the bill signing and the final passage of a gun background check bill. So for people to understand this journey that culminated today with this bill signing, I think uh, I'd love it if you guys can take us back to where this whole idea started, which was in the 2013 legislative session. I was not there. Riley was there some of the time as a intrepid young student reporter from the Nevada Sagebrush. Yeah,
1: shout out to the Nevada Media <laughs> Alliance, which yes. like four people remember and <laughs> like they're all in this room.
0: So, Riley, tell me a little bit about the genesis of the background check bill in the 2013 session. And this was the bill that was uh, introduced by then-Senator Justin Jones and current commissioner.
1: Yeah, so way back in 2013, then-Senator then Senator Justin Jones introduced this bill that would require um, any private party gun sale or transfer with a handful of exceptions to first undergo a background check. Right now under federal law and the state obviously does this too anytime you go to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer so you go to like bob's guns and stuff and you want to buy a firearm they'll run a background check some states use the fbi's background check system which draws on federal criminal history nevada has our own system which draws on state history it takes anywhere from like two minutes to 15 minutes just depending on uh, a variety of factors but you have to pass that in order to actually purchase the gun people who can't buy guns or fugitives from justice, obviously people not legally in the country, if you've been dishonorably discharged from the military, if you're uh, addicted to a controlled substance, things like that, those are all reasons why you couldn't pass a background check. But there's this thing called the gun show loophole, as uh, gun control advocates like to call it, where if you go to buy a gun on Craigslist or at a gun show or just if you meet up with a buddy in a car, you can just sell the gun one person to another person without going through a background check. And a lot of advocates have said, um, you know, that's something we want to ensure there's background checks being done because if you're mentally ill or if you don't meet one of the categories that would allow you to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer, this is like a, a way to get around that and get your hands on a firearm. Uh, another category I didn't mention earlier is that uh, people who were have been convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor also are prohibited from buying guns under the background check system, but they can presumably go on Craigslist or they can go to a gun uh, show and, and purchase a firearm there. So. This bill was up in 2013. Um, it had a substantial number of amendments, I think like four or five. Uh, it was one of the last bills the legislature passed. It was a party-line vote in the state Senate, and there was a handful of Democrats who voted against it in the Assembly. But then, as now, Democrats had a majority in both houses, so it passed. Governor Brian Sandball vetoed it, saying it was, I think, an unfair restriction on Second Amendment uh, respecting hunters. They, their argument has always been no one's really going to follow this, so it's just going to put barriers in place for legal gun ownership, and it's just not necessary. We're going to turn criminals. Normal people, their argument always kind of circles around this idea that, like, if me and my cousin go hunting and I give my cousin my gun, then I'm I go going off to be a deal.
0: criminal, right?
1: I'm going to be a criminal because I didn't do a background check first. Mm-hmm. So that was his argument. That was their argument at the time, and the bill was vetoed. It wasn't taken up in 2015 or anything. But Justin Jones didn't quit there.
0: Justin Jones lost the subsequent year.
1: He did lose the subsequent year. Um, In
0: 2014, that was the red wave.
1: That was the the big old red wave. Um, But in 2014, he also launched a signature drive to get basically the same bill on the ballot. And that's what became question one.
0: Now Megan you were there in the 2016 election as the Las Vegas Sun's one woman politics bureau. Yes. So you were you lived this question 1 kind of the the debate there. Tell us a little bit about what happened in that election.
2: Yeah, so, you know, like Riley mentioned, you know, this this was a proposal that, that went to the ballot um, in 2016. I think one of the interesting things, and we saw this kind of come up this week, but, you know, whenever you have, you know, ballot measure on the ballot, obviously people are going to turn out to, to vote for it because they're passionate about it. You know, there's folks who probably specifically went to the ballot because they were interested in seeing some sort of, um, you know, gun legislation enacted. But the interesting thing with elections is, you got a full ballot of of a lot of things going on. So 2016 was a presidential election year. We had a U.S. Senate race. There were obviously House races, um, you know, the legislative races on the ballot. So there were a ton of other things on the ballot. So I think one of the interesting things about 2016 and the fact that it was a presidential election year is that you traditionally see higher Democratic turnout. And so obviously Democrats had really high turnout in 2016. You know, Hillary Clinton, former Secretary of State, uh, you know, won the state over Donald Trump, even though he won overall. And we just saw really high Democratic turnout. And question one, like Riley was mentioning, uh, passed. And it passed by a pretty narrow margin, but it was a majority of votes. And the interesting thing is that it Passed. If you're looking at counties in which over 50% of voters supported it, Clark County was the only county in which more than 50% of voters supported it. Voters in other 16 counties actually defeated the measure, so it won with pretty much just the support of Clark County, and you know it passed, but it was a smaller margin, and that's something that we saw come up a lot this week in conversations about um, talking about the will of voters and you know what did voters exactly intend when they approved this measure in 2016.
0: Yeah, and obviously we heard this argument that only Clark County approved it. And of course, the thing to remember is Clark County is 73% of the population. So that really matters. I think what the point of that was, though, is that, you know, a lot of the rurals may, you know, just kind of have a different culture as it relates to guns and uh, just feel quite different. There's there's a pretty stark urban-rural divide, I would say, on the issue of guns. Now, after it passed... Within a couple months, it became clear that there was a massive issue with the ballot measure. Uh, Riley, tell us what happened in December 2016.
1: Uh, way back in December of 2016, um, we didn't know this at the time, but the ballot measure required the state's Department of Public Safety to contract with the FBI. This was in Justin Jones's 2013 bill and also in the ballot language that the FBI would conduct the background checks that prevents... The state, from having an additional cost, from having to process whatever number of checks comes in, I think they estimated at a fiscal note it would be like $650,000 potentially every year to do all of them. But the FBI said, we're not going to do it. And that's what they just kept saying and saying, despite uh, multiple requests, phone calls, emails, letters. The governor's office got involved, and eventually uh, the Department of Public Safety just said, we don't know what to do because we need to do this. The voters approved it, but we can't because the FBI is not going to allow us to do it. So they asked Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who had vigorously campaigned against it. He had appeared in campaign ads by the group opposing the ballot question for an opinion. They asked his office for an opinion and his office returned an opinion saying, basically this uh, initiative as written would prohibit any and all private gun sales or transfers just because there's no way to do it due to due justice concerns it's just unenforceable as written. So that was a legal opinion. I think there's a lot of confusion that Adam Laxalt blocked this. That's not necessarily true. His opinion was used by sheriffs to say, we're not going to enforce this because it's not possible. But he got a lot of strife over the next two years and during his subsequent run run for governor for um, issuing that opinion. But it basically just put the whole thing on ice. Like this was passed by voters in 2016 and just never went into effect and was never allowed to go into effect. And obviously, in 2017, we can change anything. The state prohibits any voter approved initiative from being changed for three years past implementation date. So, there wasn't a lot that could be done necessarily with how it was written.
0: Yeah. So, I think, um, you know, especially as the campaign wore on, there was um, just a lot of stuff on social media angry at Adam Laxalt and probably to a lesser extent, Governor Sandoval. Um, I think Adam Laxalt was really the target of that because the opinion came from his office. But it turns out that it was, I mean, it was legitimately a judge ruled that it wasn't that he was necessarily at fault for not implementing this measure. I mean, it was, you can't force the FBI to do a check that they say they don't want to do.
1: Yeah, it's a weird, like, administrative, bureaucracy, federal thing, but basically under the Brady Act, which required all these background checks to be put in place, states could have the ability to either do all the background checks themselves, have the feds do all of them, or have a hybrid system. So like the state will just do handguns and then the feds will do like long guns, but the state would need to like request their status be changed. And that kind of became an issue in this lawsuit that, that you mentioned uh, that came up in 2017 and 2018, that the state effectively changed its designation as doing all of the background checks to now it would be a hybrid, but the judge obviously didn't buy that and the FBI didn't buy it. So that was kind of the the root of the FBI's refusal to uh, conduct the checks.
0: And this all really came to a head when the October 1 shooting happened. And the New York Times, I remember writing an editorial critical of Adam Laxalt and Governor Sandoval for not getting this voter-approved background check into an implementation mode. And, and, of course, I think it's been determined that Stephen Paddock bought all his guns legally and this background check would not have eliminated uh, him out of the pool. But it was just such a a frustration, I think, for for people that wanted this gun measure to go through, these gun background checks, that it just, for reasons that were kind of even hard to understand, it was not being implemented And so that just became a social media, you know, I mean, just I saw a lot of um, angry people just really upset that this was not being uh, put into motion.
1: And a lot of it, too, is like a perception thing, right? So Sandoval's office, like after this lawsuit had started, um, we were able to get documents that they had asked the FBI like a fifth time to try and implement this. So they were constantly showing they were trying to do it. Adam Laxalt's campaign and through the AG's office just said, we did our opinion. We didn't block anything, but it's a flawed as written. And he never gave it an answer while he was running for governor of, like, if you would sign this into law or sign a solution into law. So I think that contributed a lot to that perception that it was sort of his doing that, that kind of blocked it, even though it was, like, almost entirely the, the fault of the flawed drafting.
0: Yeah, you're right. Governor Sandoval said that the thing that people needed to do is the legislature needed to change this. And
1: have the state do the checks, which is what right. they did. <laughs> and every Republican opposed it. But we'll get exactly. we'll get to there.
0: And uh, Adam Laxalt, as you mentioned, didn't really address what he would do if, if a bill like this ended up at his desk. And, of course, he has been supported by the NRA. He has appeared in pass it at each convention. So I think it just fueled a perception that Adam Laxalt was to blame for this whole thing. Uh, let's go fast forward to earlier this week. There was an extremely long committee hearing, a joint committee hearing. Megan, you watched some of this. Tell us a little bit about the mood in the room as as this bill that basically would make the state do the background checks, not the not the FBI anymore, came up for discussion.
2: Well, I think one of the the interesting things, even before getting to the committee hearing, is we kind we we knew that this was going to come up this session, right? When you know Governor Steve Sisolak, a Democrat, got elected. You know, Democrats have you know, a near supermajority in the Senate, supermajority in the Assembly, we knew this was going to be an issue coming into the session. And, you know, Governor Sisolak had been a little coy about what the solution would be, um, but he had said this is an issue we're, we're going to tackle. And Riley and I, when doing some pre-session interviews, and even Speaker Frierson uh, at the very beginning of the session said, you know, background checks on guns is going to be, you know, something we're going to tackle. It's going to be among the first votes that we take um, in this body. So we knew that this, you know, was coming headed into the session, you know, and I I think exactly sort of where they were going emerged really, you know, end of last week, this week, um, when on Monday, they actually introduced the gun uh, background check measure. And like Riley alluded to earlier, it it makes that tweak and makes the state responsible for the background checks instead of the FBI. And so that's what took us to, you know, Bill introduced on Monday um, by two, Tuesday, Tuesday morning at 8 a.m., there was this committee hearing. Um, Riley was was there in the room with <laughs> hundreds of people wanting to testify on this. And, you know, first we saw sort of lawmakers pick pick this bill apart. And I, I think it was interesting to see Republican lawmakers. Obviously, we knew that going into this, you know, they, they probably weren't going to be um, supported. But to see what they honed in on, like one of the things that stuck out to me was Assemblywoman Joel Toles, um told the story about, you know, the first gun when she got a you know concealed carry permit she got a gun from her sister-in-law and that was that would have been a transfer right that's something that under this law she would need a background check for and then she talked about her father-in-law wanting to give her or gave her some some guns as well and that would also be a transfer And one of the things to note, so under this bill, you can transfer among immediate family members, but, like, an in-law wouldn't count. So, you know, she was saying, what about these people? You know, they're basically my family. You know, her her husband's, like, biological family, but they're still her family. And now this bill would basically make this a crime, um, and I would be penalized for this. So she brought up sort of that that personal example. And I know one of the things Republicans, you know, pointed out during the hearing is proponents of the bill were talking about the fact that, oh, well, you could, you know, your your father in law could have given, you know, the gun to your husband and then your husband could give the gun to you. And they were like, well, then we're just gonna have all these workarounds. You know, what's what's the good of this this bill in the first place if we're just saying, okay, so you can give it to your this person who you're biologically related to, and then they can, you know, give it to their spouse, which again is approved under the bill. So that was one of the things that they one of the just one of the points that they honed on during that hearing and I'm sure Riley will share some more of his insights and observations from that very very long hearing. <laughs> yeah, Riley, tell us a little bit about, I mean, do you feel the
0: emotional energy was on the NRA side on this one?
1: Sort of. So, like right like Megan said this bill was introduced on Monday, but we kind of had a sense like going into this week that this is going to be the big issue because this joint hearing was scheduled I think on Friday, uh, Republican Senate leader James Settlemeyer sent an email out on last Thursday saying, like, there's this bill coming up, like, make sure you come out to testify. So the NRA and the Nevada Republican Party have, like, really grabbed onto this issue and they've sent emails out of basically every point of the legislative process asking people to get involved. So it was one of the most crowded times I've seen the legislature. I won't say, like, the most, but it's one of, like, probably the top five or top ten overwhelmingly um, opposed. I think there was a lot of rural residents and a lot of Carson City residents who showed up to oppose it. I mean, the first part of the hearing was lawmakers asking questions. Obviously, Governor Sisolak came. Then we had some supporters like Attorney General Aaron Ford, Senator Ivana Kinsella. And then the opposition uh, talked briefly. Then they went in for a floor session. And then the opposition was in until about 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So it was an extremely long hearing, very repetitive at points because there's only so many, like, you know, ways to talk about this bill. But, you know, I think Democrats were very perceptive and did not want to be accused of rushing this bill through the process, which was sort of coming up on like Thursday, Friday, Monday. So they decided we're going to let everyone who wants to speak speak. It happened that like one person tried to come up more than once to talk about a thing. But uh, Senator uh, Nicole Cannizzaro, who chaired the committee hearing, just let everyone go for their allotted two minutes regardless of who they were or who they were backing. So I think people were happy with that. I think we saw that today on the assembly for, um, uh, that no rules. I think one rule was suspended to like kind of process the bill a day faster. But other than that, everything else followed the normal legislative course.
0: Yeah. And Democrats didn't need to rush it. I mean, this is, they've got all the control. They know governor Sisolak's going to sign this bill. I mean, it's not like Republicans are going to be able to stop it.
1: Yeah, so. but if they want to, and they have this power, as we'll see at the very end of the session, they can get a bill introduced and passed on the same day. Like, they they can do that as long as they suspend the rules.
0: They could, but yeah. So, I mean, what we saw was them at least trying to let people be heard on the issue even though the result was exactly kind of what we expected. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, like you mentioned, they didn't have to do this, right? It could have just run its normal course. You know, we could have had a committee hearing on it any old day, you know, we, we also had, so it was a joint Senate and Assembly Judiciary Committee hearing. So where normally you'd be heard in one house and then passed and then go to the other house and go to that committee and then be passed. We did it sort of all, we, we, you know, it was heard all at the same time to move things through. But, you know, Democrats obviously wanted to take a stand on this issue and say, OK, you know, we have this legislative power. You know, we have a Democratic governor. They wanted to make a stand early on instead of, you know, waiting till the end of the session to pass um, to pass this kind of a bill. And I think one of the interesting things, too, that we heard in that hearing this refrain from Democrats about, you know, we're carrying out the will of the people, you know, that that sort of justice has been denied because this has not been implemented for so many days. And the Republican argument was, well, no, this is a different, a fundamentally different bill. And sort of that's what it came down to between Democrats and Republicans was, Did voters, when they passed this bill, you know, were they saying, Yes, FBI, we want you to conduct these background checks? Or did the average person just say, Okay, yeah, like gun show loophole, we want to close that. There should be background checks on private sales and transfers to what extent were they actually aware of who was responsible for conducting the checks, you know, where they can, cons- were, were, you know, voters who were voting on this, Were they concerned about the fiscal impact to the state conducting the checks. Was that why they specifically wanted the FBI to do it? So I think that was a lot of sort of the back and forth between Democrats and Republicans during the hearing too.
0: Now, Riley, you did a couple interesting stories this week about the background checks themselves and how many purchases they're actually stopping. Before we get to that I want to mention that while this bill remained unimplemented for basically 2 years is it 2 years or more years more than 2 years well, <laughs> Yeah more than 2 years passed in yeah, November 2016 Governor Sandoval said you know what we're going to do is we're going to let people do these voluntary background checks so you want to have a background check if you're going to sell it to somebody yes by all means and and the state's going to pay for it you're not going to have to pay for it But I think we saw pretty clearly that Almost nobody does that if they're not being forced to conduct a background check. Um, I did a story a couple months ago that there was only probably less than 200 people in in more than a year that had gone out of their way to to go and get a background check done just out of the goodness of their own heart. um, But tell me a little bit about what you found in terms of how many gun purchases and what percentage of gun purchases are these checks even stopping?
1: Yeah, so I was curious, because I watched as much of the eight-hour committee hearing as I could stomach. Uh, <laughs> it was a very long hearing. Um, but one thing that uh, I heard from a lot of the backers of the bill and from Attorney General Aaron Ford was, like, there were 5,000 um, attempted gun purchases that were rejected from a failed background check between 2012 and for- 2014. And I thought, like, well, we're in 2019. We probably have, like, better statistics now. or more up-to-date ones. So. I asked and I got information on how many there were every year and the reasons why they were rejected. And it's interesting just to see like kind of how the breakdown is. The, the largest percentage for a long time were people who were considered fugitives from justice. Um, in 2016, over 1,100 people considered fugitives, meaning they have an active arrest warrant out for their arrest, uh, were blocked from buying a gun. But in 2017, there was a change um, in federal policy to consider fugitives from justice as people who had an arrest warrant out, but they were trying, they were in a different state. So, if you had an arrest warrant out in Nevada and you tried to buy a gun in California, you're a fugitive from justice. If you have an arrest warrant out in Nevada, but you buy a gun here, then you know longer count. So, the number of people rejected for that dropped from like 1,100 to 44, which is just a huge number.
0: So, what you're saying is there's a lot of people that have an arrest warrant in Nevada, go to a gun store, and the background check is not gonna stop them.
1: Yes, because Nevada's definition of a fugitive from justice is the same as the um, the federal government's one, where it's someone who's crossed state lines to avoid that arrest warrant. And I just want to be clear that like this isn't like there's 1,100 murderers out there buying guns. This could be people people with like unpaid traffic tickets or minor things like that. But you know, if you're out on bail and you can buy a gun, you know, it's it's just it's a conversation I think that's worth having, and I found that very interesting. That that was another reason why the total number of rejected background checks has also gone down. Other top categories are like people who have served a sentence over a year, they're prohibited from buying guns and there's about 350 to 400 who are rejected from buying a gun every year because their background check is rejected. People with uh, misdemeanor domestic violence convictions, there's like 50 or 60 uh, people not legally in the country who try to buy a gun illegally every year. So um, it was pretty static across a lot of categories other than that, that category of fugitives from justice. Um, but the other important point of that is like that only makes up about 3% of all background checks in total that the state processes. So only about 3% of those that are attempted are rejected. So the vast majority of people buying guns are doing it legally and can pass a background check. But I think people were able to hone in on both of those facts, and especially the fact that something like 16,000 or 13,000 attempted gun purchases were blocked by legal background checks from federal licensed dealers.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the symbolism of this week. Um, and I think you both were watching when Sandra Howdegee was testifying about her experience in, in, in the October 1 shooting. This was also timed to be the week of the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, which really did seem to change the course of gun policy in the state. I mean, we had, um, after that, Governor Sandoval called this School Safety Task Force to come together and that's the reason why we have 78 million dollars of new funding planned uh, just for sh- school safety measures. So the Parkland thing was, you know, I mean there's a lot of school shootings, but that one was one that did have a significant impact on on our state in that sense. Tell me a little bit more about the kind of the symbolism of the week and, and what you heard from Sandra.
2: Yeah, I think um and this is something that that's kind of interesting because we've we've I mean obviously had so many incidents of Gun violence, and and that was one of the things that we heard during a lot of the the public comment is, on, on both sides, right. So Assemblywoman Howdicky was sharing a little bit about her story. She was, um, if people don't know, she was present the night uh, of the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival during the Las Vegas shooting. She was there with her fiance, now husband. Um, you know, she told a very emotional story about you know him crawling on top of her to cover her while bullets were raining down. You know, obviously, just a very difficult experience. You know, for her and everyone else who was there that night to to have gone through. So she, you know, shared that story and she acknowledged, like you were mentioning earlier in the podcast, that this bill specifically, you know, wouldn't have prevented the shooter from obtaining his guns, but that she was there standing in solidarity with survivors of, of other forms of gun violence. And you know, we heard a lot of of talk about one October, but also folks acknowledging that you know, there's there's school shootings and how are folks obtaining those guns. Even, you know, folks were talking about suicide. You know, when someone commits suicide, how are they obtaining that gun and is there a way to help that person and prevent them obtaining that gun or making it a little bit more difficult for them so you can sort of reduce gun violence in in those ways. So we saw, you know, a lot of of references to a lot of just different incidents of, of gun violence and sort of this acknowledgement that, okay, maybe this bill wouldn't have stopped all of them, but maybe it would have stopped some of them and maybe that would help in some way. So I think that's what you know. the big focus from, from proponents of this legislation was as far as the, the timing of this bill.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I heard it in a very short committee hearing of this bill in the Assembly Judiciary and, and Committee Chairman Steve Yeager said something to that effect. Like, we, we can't prove a negative. We, of those 13,000 people that were denied a gun, how do we know if any of them would have committed a, an act, you know, of violence with that gun. We just never know. But I think a lot of the folks, what I heard over and over again was, you know, they wanted, a lot of people want to do this as a way to do something about gun violence, um, do everything they can to try to prevent any in, in act of gun violence, even if they are acknowledging that, you know, a background check can be circumvented and, and a determined criminal could find a way to get a gun probably some other other way um you guys were both at this bill signing ceremony and you were both at the assembly floor um anything you want to share with us about what the environment was like at either of those two events today
1: Sure. So on the Assembly floor, we knew there was going to be a floor debate. The one in the Senate lasted for about 90 minutes to two hours. It involved a 30-minute American history lesson from Senator Ira Hansen, which was enlightening, to say the least. But the Assembly one was uh, stripped down. It was about 30 minutes long. There were eight lawmakers who talked, four Republicans, four Democrats. One interesting thing that I've noticed throughout covering this issue throughout the week is that there's been a movement among, I would call, moderate Republicans to sort of embrace um, gun control policies that would have been uh, opposed pretty staunchly by Republicans in the last session. I've heard multiple mentions of people supporting red flag laws where a court can order someone uh, suspected of having mental illness or other issues uh, from owning or possessing a firearm. This is something that former Senator Michael Roberson called a pre-crime bill, like the film Minority Report in 2017. It's something that Adam Laxalt, the former AG and gubernatorial candidate, kind of slammed at the NRA's meeting in 2017, um, but I heard several assembly people, including Tom Roberts, um, saying they would support a concept like that. So I think there's been a movement towards the middle um, on a lot of these gun issues. I think the mood on the assembly was, for the most part, respectful. I think there was an attempt by some Republicans to get in a few extra shots after the vote was had, and there that was kind of pushed back quickly by Speaker Jason Frierson and Majority Leader Teresa Benitez-Thompson. Obviously, they're upset because they have almost, they have no leverage with less than 15 votes, so they can't stop anything, uh, even with their less than a, a third. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it was sort of interesting to look at uh, Jim Wheeler's comments, the assembly minority leader, he thanked uh, the speaker for uh, not suspending any rules. But he also said, like, I, we've talked a lot about working bipartisanly and like having input from the other side. And that didn't happen in this case. The Two examples of that is that on the Senate, there was an amendment uh, submitted to try and change the bill. And then on the Assembly side, there was a uh, motion to put it in a budget committee to, to look at the, fi- the fiscal impact. Both of those were rejected. But the, I think the fact that they allowed those motions to come up, which I don't think they necessarily had to under parliamentary rules, was a sign that they wanted to at least give Republicans a chance to say, like, hey, we tried to stop this or make it better
0: you brought up a point about the Republicans sort of embracing things that they wouldn't have maybe in the past. And and I think we even saw that with Adam Laxalt, uh, when his school safety recommendations that he came out with, I believe it was last summer, even he was getting behind the concept of red flag laws, you know, and he's one of the most staunch second amendment guys in the state. Um, so I, do, I definitely think that's a, a move that, uh, we're seeing for more Republicans and Riley, correct me if I'm wrong, but the NRA has come out in favor of some of those.
1: They have like a tentative supportive red flag laws. There's a couple other gun groups that are opposed to them still in, in concept. Um, and we'll see if the NRA comes to testify, if there's a red flag bill this session, but yeah, you're right. Like Keith Picard, who's this Republican Senator who won by 24 votes. He tweeted on Monday, like when all the stuff was going on, because a lot of people thought, you know, he won so narrowly, he's going to be wishy-washy on this issue. He said, I support background checks, but not in this way. And so he's on the Judiciary Committee. He uh, asked some very tough questions of the people supporting the bill. He was the one who um, helped write or put the ideas together for the amendment that Republicans offered on the Senate side that would kind of lower the penalties, define what a transfer is or possession, expand who in your family is able to be transferred again without a background check. made a handful of other changes. And if they had accepted that amendment, I, I think, like, he would have voted for it. Senator Heidi Gansert in Reno, who also has kind of a slightly swingy district, might have voted for it. And possibly Senator Scott Hammond, who, again, is someone who um, isn't in, like, a super, super red district, might have seen support for it. And, you know, a, a lot of these these Republicans stood up on when they giving their floor speech and said, I support background checks, but here's all my issues with the bill. So I think... That's movement compared to where we've been in the last couple of sessions, at least for the Republican position on a lot of this stuff.
0: Where do we go from here? If I need to go buy a gun tomorrow, you know, from online or something like that, am I going to have to have a background check? No. Tell me when I need to get the background check.
1: January 2nd, 2020. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so the bill, I think the implementation date was like, January first, uh, twenty seventeen, state law prohibits any changes um, made legislatively to a voter-approved initiative uh, for at least three years. So, this won't take effect until January second,
2: twenty twenty. Although in the meantime, we're anticipating some sort of legal challenge. And Governor Cisilak, at the bill signing, you know, said that he's they're, they're going to defend the law and we'll have to see what happens as far as any legal challenges go
1: yeah and that would be challenging that like can the legislature preemptively change something Mm -hmm. um as opposed to having to wait for several years so we'll see more gun stuff
0: well i just want to put in a plug here that uh this is kind of a key flaw with ballot measures right i mean you can't change any sort of unintended consequence for three years and that i mean this could have been addressed in the last session probably had not that three-year provision been in there. There's some things with the marijuana that were you know, very controversial last session but could not be changed for three years. Um, so I, I think we may see, even with some of the ballot measures that have been passed this session, potentially some issues that the legislature has no power over for, for a period of time. So.
1: And yeah, this court case is going to be interesting in that respect. It's going to give lawmakers a better idea of like, all right, do we have to wait two sessions to fix whatever voters you know, approved in a ballot measure, or we're going to wait three if they determine that, no, you can't preemptively make changes. It's possible that if it succeeds, they could go into a special session, I guess, in December. But yeah, well, it remains to be seen what what would happen.
0: Well, I think that's enough about gun background checks for now. Do you guys want to chat about uh, some of the other interesting things that happened this week? Sure.
2: (laughs) Well, one of the interesting things, it didn't happen this week, but it's something that I wrote about this week and have my eye on for next week. Um, But Senator Scott Hammond, Republican, has introduced a bill that would expand Medicaid coverage to include donor breast milk. And so this is really important for premature babies that are born either with low birth weights or have intestinal conditions. There's this really Scary condition that babies can get, where bacteria basically eats away at their bowels and like the bowel dies, um, and it's it's really bad for babies. And one of the things that um, doctors recommend to help prevent some of those conditions and other complications associated with being a premature baby is um, breastfeeding. But often, if a baby is born premature, the mother has difficulty um, nursing her baby. The baby's too young; it it can't suckle yet. So there are a lot of issues just associated with. Um, being able to breastfeed a premature baby. And so um, a lot of folks have turned to donor milk banks or there's other companies that supply donor milk uh, to breastfeed these babies, many of them in the neonatal att- intensive care units, but it's really expensive. So for low income families, you know, depending on how long the babies need the milk, it, it can be thousands of dollars. So um, Senator Hammond has introduced this bill that would require Medicaid to cover cover this for, for premature babies. And, and hopefully, you know, the goal is to, to help them have just better health outcomes, you know, long-term, um, if they are able to, to breastfeed and have difficulties doing so. Yeah, and Megan.
0: I was shocked to see how much it costs to get donor breast milk. It was something like four dollars an ounce.
2: An ounce, yeah, four fifty an ounce is the the general rate for um, donor uh, milk banks or don't yet yeah, donor milk banks. And there's other costs associated with it too, like in hospitals, just the cost of freezing and then warming and the like equipment. Like um, there's like liners associated with the warming process and all that costs money. So just the dollars, you know, add up. Pretty quickly, and some uh, there there was a study where some hospitals do provide this for, for really sick babies, but it's just a question of of cost, and you know, are they able to to do that for for their babies, especially hospitals that are these safety net hospitals that have you know a high concentration of Medicaid patients who really can't pay on their own. So it'll be interesting to see what comes up with that. The difficult thing is uh, it's going to be a hurdle to overcome. Is there's a, a fiscal note attached to the bill, so it's something like 8.8, eight point eight eight point nine million dollars in general fund money that would go toward funding this Um, that money is not in the budget right now so you know it's a question of whether lawmakers and whether the governor you know thinks that this is a priority there are a handful of other states that cover donor breast milk um, but it's really just a handful Uh, so you know remains to be seen sort of where they fall on this issue if they think it's a, a good suggestion and and if the state has the money to do it $8 $8 million
0: is a lot when you're comparing it with a lot of other
2: yeah. requests. Everyone yeah. has a request. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Riley, uh, do you want to just give us a quick overview of your weekend piece that's coming out? You and Jacob Solis collaborated on another installment of the campaign finance series.
1: Uh, sure. So we launched our big, the people demanded, the people were clamoring <laughs> for all the money. And we delivered. We had to give it to them. Um <laughs> Yeah, so me, Jacob Solis, uh, our freelancer Jeremy Marsh um, in Washington D.C., and my mom Jody Snyder helped put together Riley's campaign finance data. Hashtag participated. Indie moms um, <laughs> to put together campaign finance contributions for all sixty-three legislators. We had our big our big overview piece published last weekend. This weekend, we'll be looking at contributions from gaming companies. It's kind of what you would expect. The the top contributors are MGM Resorts, Las Vegas Sands, Boyd Gaming. Uh, the South Point of note. I think they were not in the top five last time. And then Dottie's is the, the fifth largest donor. So we'll have a very in-depth article, at least two infograms. That's two
0: it. infograms? Two
1: infograms. Well wow. You need two. Um, one is a very long infogram just as an overview, and one is how much everyone individually got, because there was no easy way to put that in text. You can also talk about what else I did this week. It seems like it was six months ago, but on Monday... I went and covered hearings on two of Democratic State Senator Julia Raddy's affordable housing bills. These are interesting. They all sort of came out of this interim study on how affordable housing works um, and which how Nevada can make it better. There were some really eye-popping statistics. Like there's only – there's a 30-year wait list for, for affordable – For Section 8 for voucher. For Section 8 voucher. Which is insane. So – Uh, The second of the bills is just improved reporting requirements for state-level agencies and and local governments. The first part was kind of the more interesting one. It would allow local governments to waive or subsidize fees for developers um, for affordable housing. They'd have to have a public hearing and determine that's not going to affect their bond rating and stuff like that, but they could get rid of some of the things like sewer impact fees um, that could be a, a barrier to creating affordable housing. Senator Ratty uh, threw everyone for a loop and submitted an amendment. Basically, right now, cities, local governments, municipalities have to put together an affordable housing plan that like picks from eight different areas. Um, her amendment that she added to this bill would add to inclusionary zoning where uh, local government can say like, all right, every development built within this city block has to have 25% housing that we deem affordable. Or another policy could be rent control, which has never happened in Nevada uh, and would be really interesting. It sort of made a comeback. It sort of you know, went by the wayside in the 70s, but a lot of folks have been clamoring for that in New York City and on the, uh, in the Bay Area. So, again, this isn't a mandate. These are things local governments can do. Braddy said that inclusionary zoning was kind of the big one that she was focusing on, but she included rent control because a lot of constituents had asked her for that. Remains to be seen if, you know, the city of Las Vegas or Clark County goes anywhere with these. And the bill obviously has to pass first. But it's interesting. And I think affordable housing is going to be a big issue uh, for the remainder of the legislature se- legislative session.
0: Just want to mention a little bit about what I was at today, which was the six hour long marijuana hearing. Uh, so it's this group trying to develop the cannabis compliance board. They want to make it potentially like the gaming control board. Probably the most interesting part about it, uh, there were a lot of just presentations about what is the gaming control board and what is the marijuana, wh- what is the Department of Taxation doing. But probably the most interesting part was some of the questions from the chair, which is Bryn Gibson. He's Governor S- uh chief counsel. Uh, He's also, you know, a former deputy attorney general that was working on the gaming issues. He had a lot of questions um, and was was kind of surprised that the Department of Taxation wasn't basically throwing the book at more. Dispensaries. I mean, there's 659 marijuana establishment license holders, and there's been no hearings on a suspension for any license. So that sort of raised some questions for him about whether this agency had the manpower, um, the resources, and kind of the structure to really uh, go after marijuana businesses that were in violation of the rules. So uh, we're going to see, it might mean more regulation for these cannabis businesses. Certainly more transparency is what Governor Sisolak has called for, since we still to this day don't even know the names of the business of people who won a conditional license from the state to get a new dispensary in the most recent round, which is kind of crazy. I mean, you don't even know the name Essence. I mean, (laughs) the state will not release even that information. So There's a lot of issues right now with um, the confidentiality of of information around marijuana uh, businesses. So anyways, I think that's all the time that we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at at ideasatthenvindy.com. And please check out our site, if you haven't already, thenevadaindependent.com. Go search for us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and rate us and subscribe, too. I want to thank uh, Riley and Megan for being here today. And special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound podcast smooth. I'm Michelle Randells. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley (laughs) Snyder.
1: I told you. (laughs)